Good morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Susan Runner, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am the official officiant today, official officiant. That's pretty good. Here we are for the first hybrid platform. We have members attending in person and recording and listening and recording later. Welcome to everyone who we are one community unified across time and space as we gather to affirm our values and common commit to a better world. This is our first back to hybrid platform after the Omicron wave and we are still figuring it out. And so let's learn from each other and forgive each other generously. Whether you are watching the recording later, joining us in the hall, or participating live on Zoom, it is good to connect across time and space. If you are joining us on Zoom, please say hello in the chat. Having your chat set for everyone will give everyone else the Zoom chance to see your greetings. Please say hello and where you are, and a brand new visitor or a longtime member, a neighbor from either another ethical society or a Unitarian Universalist congregation or person who is not in any of those categories. If you are participating live on Zoom, there's also a closed caption option that can be turned on or off. That ch the chat will stay open through most of the platform service, closing for the address and in itself and then reopening. Online visitors, we hope that you introduce yourselves in the chat and that you might send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, at maceot at ethicalsociety.org. If you are a visitor watching this recording, this invitation is for you as well. You can fill out a, con a connection form at the tiny CC West Connects, in-person visitors, please stop by the welcome table in the foyer after platform and say hello. I will now read a few of the greetings that folks have written into the chat. While I'm doing that, you may want to get a candle and light your candle for, and get it ready for our candle lighting ceremony. So a few chats. Hi all, just Abby, at least from this device. Uh, from Karen Schofield Laka, good morning everyone. Adam Goldberg, good morning everyone. Hi folks, we're this is from Robin to everyone. Hi folks, we're aware the, of the buzz going on. The awesome tech team is working on it. Last time the recording didn't capture the static buzz. So sure to head over to the website later this week for the, that version. Joe London, good morning all. Julie Drizzen, good sunny Sunday morning to you all. Yep. Sorry, my first time with this <laughs> hybrid form. There you go. Okay. Karen Storms, good morning. Trang Duong, good morning, everyone. Robin to everyone, good morning from the West Office. Yeah, wahoo, it says. Good morning, people of West from Vincent and Laura Tyler. Good morning to everyone from Shirley Storms. Kate to everyone, welcome visitors. Please come out to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. You can email him at maceot at ethicalsociety.org or fill out the connection form at https colon forward slash forward slash tiny dot cc forward slash 
West connects. Laura Steele, a good morning, everyone. Carrie Bider, good morning. From Obviously, I'm not the tech person. That's okay. That's all right. We're going to forgive each other generously. Okay. Uh, good morning, Randy, Judy, and Randy Myers to everyone. Be sure to set chat to everyone. Vivek Shashandri, good morning. Judy and Randy Myers to everyone. Good morning from Judy and Randy. Jeff Weinfeld, good morning, all. Keep doing that. Can you go up to more. More. Chat. More chat. I can't touch this thing. Okay. <laughs> Good morning to everyone from Sue Jacobson. Good morning, all. Jeff Weinfeld. And I think that's it. We are here for a hybrid platform. We have members and friends attending from Zoom and in person in the hall. We are one community unified across time and space, and we gather to affirm our values and commit to a better world. Great. So now we're on, down here. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> there you I go. am so sorry. <laughs> we're forgiving, right? We're forgiving. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's good to connect and share this time together. Once you are prepared, I invite you to settle in wherever you are as we continue to gather. Our opening words this morning are from James Baldwin, who said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. We begin our platform with music. This is Walking in the Light by today's guest musician, Kathy Bullock. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Kathy Bullock, and I'm bringing greetings to all of you members and friends of the Washington Ethical Society there in Washington, D.C. Now, while I currently live in Berea, Kentucky, and I'm a retired college professor in a Berea college, um, I am a true Washingtonian, born and bred in the DFC. So I'm extra delighted, if there is such a term, to be able to spend some time with you sharing songs that mean so much to me and songs that are designed to build encouragement uplift and they really are in line with what your beautifully written statement of purpose which is to elicit the best in the human spirit so this song is called walking in the light uh, and ain't it beautiful how the light shines so i want you to sing with me and i want you to move with me and clap with me and enjoy it with me because we can Let's celebrate this together.
light. Oh, beautiful light. Ain't it wonderful? How the light shines. You clap with me where we sing it in the light. Beautiful light. Ain't it wonderful? Yes. How the light shines. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you are interested in taking a turn to read the statement of a purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc forward slash read SOP. You can record a video of yourself reading the statement of purpose if that works better for you, or you can present the statement of purpose alongside us as we broadcast live. If you are relatively new to the community or haven't been here and, and been active lately, it's easy way to introduce or reintroduce yourself. Today's reader is Adam Briskin Limehouse. Good morning. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. If you have a candle at home, we invite you to join with us in these uh, candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion 
the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. His platform is about communities who succeeded in helping each other sometimes and making mistakes sometimes. Today's story has something to say about that. Thanks, Susan. How about now? Yes. Hi, friends. I'm Lynn Cox. My pronouns are they, them. I'm the interim leader here at the Washington Ethical Society. It's good to be here. Our platform today is about communities trying their best to join in the work of shared liberation, sometimes doing great and brave things and sometimes falling short. This is a story about a community of beings who figured out that they all needed each other to survive. Once upon a time, all the birds of the land decided that they needed a leader for their community. A leader, they thought, would make their community stronger. So representatives of all of the bird species gathered to discuss finding a leader. Do you think they did a survey? A leader will tell us the right thing to do, said the robin. Our leader must be wise, said the owl. A leader must believe that we are all important, big and small, said the sparrow. I want the leader to be caring, like a friend, said the dove. Yes, the leader will help us share and get along better, said the jay. The leader must make us feel safe, said the hawk. I know where you can find such a leader, said the Hopoe bird. It is the Samorg, and it lives far from here. Well, the birds were very excited. They said they were willing to go anywhere to find such a leader. It might be dangerous, said the Hopoe bird. A few birds looked troubled, but all the birds voted to go and find the Samorg. The Hopoe bird took off and all of the birds followed. They flew at night, they flew in sunshine, they flew through fog, days and days passed. Well, some of the birds got tired and left the group. Other birds were filled with doubt. How did they know the smorg really existed? Only the Hopoe had ever heard of this bird. Some of the doubters dropped out, but other birds kept flying. One valley was filled with fiery mountains and the birds were afraid. I'm too small to make it over that mountain, lamented the sparrow. No, keep flying. We can make it together. We will help you. And they did. The large birds lifted the small birds and they made it over the fiery mountains. The strong flyers helped the weaker flyers and the birds with good vision helped find food for the group. Along the journey, the birds learned how to better respect and share and care for one another. It seemed that every bird had something special and unique to offer that made the journey easier. Finally, the Hopoe announced, we're here. Well, the other birds looked around in anticipation. 
Where's the smorg? We don't see it, they cried. Come, it's over here, said the hopoe. And the birds stood beside the hopoe and realized they were on the edge of a lake. They looked in and saw their own reflections. And then they understood. The smorg was not another bird. The smorg was all of them. And all of them were the smorg. They remembered that each of them had something good and strong and special inside them. And each bird had gifts to give the community. They were all that was needed to keep the community strong. And they knew now that together they could do anything. The birds came to understand that each one has a gift. The whole community needed each one's gift for all of them to be their best. Among humans, sometimes we forget that all of us need all of us to make it. We work for everyone to be free because none of us are free unless all of us are free. When it comes to racial justice, ethical culture societies and Unitarian Universalist congregations have sometimes been part of moving our world toward liberation. And sometimes we have missed opportunities. Some of us have journeyed onward. Some of us have gotten discouraged and tired, but maybe they will rejoin the journey. There have been hopes and successes. There have been mistakes within and by our communities, and there are chances to make repairs. The question is, when we look into the lake and see all of us really see what is going on the possibilities for justice in our community, and what work is needed for all of us to be free. What will we do next? May we keep on moving forward. May we tell the story of our journey so far with honesty. May we recommit to the work of liberation. And may we remember that our thriving is bound up together. As we consider a deeper peace and a larger love, let's enter into the center of time, centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of our community of Wes having its first platform in our beloved building in a hybrid fusion map. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us and the Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer.
and let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. we go into our meditation, let's take a nourishing breath. Breathe in a way that feels good for your body. Notice the feeling of breathing in, and cherishing that breath, and notice the feeling of breathing out. Bring your attention to the present moment as we hear these words by Susan Magan. Breathe with me. You who feel sorrows calling across oceans, calling across the room, echoing in the spacious cavern of your chest. Breathe with me. You who wake with the sun carrying a restlessness to make justice and mercy. Breathe with me. You who walk humbly, accepting that your gifts for the world will be made by you. You, a soft creature who must pause for meals, water, laughter, and rest. Breathe with me. You who sing by heart songs of peace, hope, joy, and love this world into a home. We continue our meditation in silence and in the music that follows. Right here. 
reading today is, consists of excerpts from the Selma Awakening by Mark Morrison Reed. How the Civil Rights Movement Tested and Changed Unitarian Universalism by Mark Morrison Reed. This book traces the groundwork before the march in Selma in 1965. The events there, including the murder of two Unitarian Universalists by white supremacists, and the ways the events in 1965 led to both progress and frustration related to racial justice in Unitarian Universalism for the generation to follow. Mark Morrison Reed 
wrote in 2013. I was raised on the south side of Chicago, but in 1965, when the events described in this book took place, I was 15 years old and attending a Swiss boarding school called Ecole de Humanité, meaning School of Humanity. My schoolmates came from Switzerland, Nicaragua, Israel, Denmark, the world. We lived a simple lifestyle, almost Spartan, and we had almost no access to television or radio. What I know about Selma, I garnered from reading the International Herald Tribune. I read it hungrily, despite the pain, anger, and confusion that the news reports inevitably stirred up in me. Because my African-American parents, a nuclear chemist and a social worker, were firmly entrenched in the upper middle class, there was not much in my life experience to help me make sense of what I was reading. Something terrible was happening, terrible yet heroic and important, something being done for me and all people with skin like mine. Some of these protesters in the Selma were younger than I was. Others were Unitarian Universalists like me. It was painful to be cut off from the movement, unable to share in the effort. I felt guilty about living a life so free. 43 years later, for the first time, I ventured into the Deep South. I participated in the Unitarian Universalist Living Legacy Civil Rights Pilgrimage Bus Tour. We were a diverse group in an early 21st century Unitarian Universalist way. More families, more seniors than young adults, about equal numbers of female and male ministers. About a quarter of us identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Another quarter of us people of color, including one Latina and one Canadian. The, tier, the tour also included Bill Sinkford, the first African-American president of the UUA, and three veterans of the Selma, Char, Selma, Charles Blackburn, Gordon Gibson, and Clark Olson. As we traversed Alabama and Mississippi, terror gripped me. I knew the feeling was old and understood that it was based in what I had read and imagined what I had seen on television in the 50s and 60s. Before that trip, my total experience in the South had amounted to a few days in Atlanta in 1969 and 1985. The South had changed, but it didn't matter. Fear ruled me. It felt like my gut and, the, and in the shallowness of my breath, I was hypervigilant. No matter how firmly I told myself I was overreacting, what comfort I found I would in the companionship of others on the journey. On the fourth day of the pilgrimage, we arrived in Selma, this epicenter of events that had in addition to refreshing American history had haunted me. The feelings I had experienced so long ago had faded, but they had not gone away or been forgotten. 
On the way, we stopped in Marion and visited the memorial to Jimmy Lee Jackson. Seeing the gravestone pockmarked with bullet holes only deepened my anxiety. Before moving on to the site of on Route 80, where Viola Luzio was shot and where her Oldsmobile careened off the highway, we spent the night in Selma. We ate in the Walker's Cafe, sitting at those same tiny tables. We strolled up the street with Clark Olson to the place where James Reeb, Orloff Miller, and he had been bludgeoned. The following day, I stood in front of Brown Chapel AME, waiting for our bus. The Carver homes, simple red brick row houses were across the street, and I tried to imagine what it had been like in the march in 1965. I saw clusters of people scattered around the projects and others streaming in and out of the chapel, black folks guiding their comrades in arms into their homes, providing places to sleep, food to eat, and thanks. I imagined how out of the ordinary it was for all of them, black and white, to live and link arms together, to form lines and find in one another the courage to meet phalanxes of police with only prayers, songs, and faith. I imagined the Selma Wall, where the interminable standoff took place. For me, that empty street was full. A low rumble in the distance interrupted my musing. I turned and looked down the street. I saw a few motorcycles. The rumble grew as more motorcycles came around the corner and more and more. The rumble became a roar. As they drew near, I could distinguish three leaders. They were police officers, two white, one black. Behind them, the entire block was filled with motorcycles. The ground trembled, the roar was deafening, even with their power bridled. The riders cruised up to the chapel, cut their engines, and dismounted. What bikes, BMW, Roadmasters, Honda Goldwings, Harley Davidsons, Chrome, shiny as a mirror, a few with sidecars, the leather-clad riders headed into Brown Chapel AME now a shrine to the civil rights movement. As they tramped and tromped by, I could see the insignia on the back of their leather jackets. Buffalo soldiers, over 200 of them from across America, all of them were black and like us, they had come to pay homage. I understood Archibald MacLeish's poem. They say we have given our lives but until it is finished, no one can know what our lives gave. In 1965, no one who lived in Selma and no one who went to Selma could have imagined this site. The protesters thought the struggle was about gaining the right to vote. It was more and that and much more. The moral battle was a continuation of the American Revolution a yet unfinished revolution. The victory at Selma served as the catalyst of an economic and political revolution that led to an African-American becoming president of the United States. 
King delivered many biblical phrases that led to up a, that held up a vision of freedom and justice. But even from the mountaintop, it was impossible to foretell what the vision would be fulfilled like this. Unitarian Universalists did not know that Selma would become a pivotal movement in their own history. In the, in the past, our religious forebears had stood up the brink, stood on the brink of making a difference in racial justice and wavered. But not this time. Called, sent, drawn, or compelled, hundreds responded. When they left there were two UU martyrs in their hearts, and there, were, there was conviction in their stride. They had been changed in the ways lives would reveal, but which, which words would never quite capture. It is not possible nor necessary to know the outcome of our actions. Therefore, we act in faith. Faith asks not that we succeed, but that we try. We try because we yearn to live our lives and our values. Conscience urges us on, for we have dreamed of a better, more just tomorrow. We care, therefore we act. In acting, we risk having our hearts broken a thousand times. Therefore, we must be sustained by hope. That is the price those who cleared the way for us accepted. It is what living fully, deeply, and with integrity demands. The second half of the second verse of Lift Every Voice and Sing, the African-American national anthem begins, we have come over a way that with tears has been watered. That is the way our spiritual ancestors came. The way we follow will be different and its outcomes undreamed of. But just as we did for our forebears, the way will require us of us courage, sacrifice, and tears. Thank you, Susan. The Samorg in today's story is a reflection of all the birds. All of us need all of us. I like to imagine that the birds noticed the space between them in their reflection and knew that even then the work was not done, that part of their community were missing. They might listen to the Sankofa bird of Ghana who says to go back and get it, reviewing and reclaiming and relearning from the past. In the journey toward racial justice and liberation in our society, including our ethical culture and Unitarian Universalist flocks, we have not yet reached the lake of discovery. There have been those among us who told us it was there, far-seeing eagles and compelling songbirds. There have been those among us who told us of the urgency and how the aviary we have been living in depends too much on the exploitation and oppression of some for the benefit of others. We have crossed fiery mountains and called to one another through fog. There have been great achievements. 
and we still have ways to go before we understand and live into the truth that all of our liberation is bound up together. None of us are free until all of us are free. We have not arrived unless all of us are in right relationship with each other and the earth, all able to share in the abundance and care of the whole. In the retelling of today's story, Jessica York speaks of birds who dropped out on the journey, tired and discouraged. And that may sound familiar in the journey for racial justice. Some who are oppressed and who tried to work with allies had their hearts broken too many times. Some who attempted to help could not sustain the energy through disappointment. And larger factors such as economic inequality, oppressive factors dividing groups who have a common cause, and the empty promises and token gestures of those in power have all tried to weaken movements. But we are not done. Racial justice is a centuries-long journey. And today we're going to skim the surface of the mid-20th century civil rights movement, some of Wes's and some of Unitarian Universalist involvement in it. Sometimes in our Sunday morning context, we dwell exclusively on what we can be proud of. And those are important stories, and we are going to talk about some of those stories. And yet there's also detours and disappointments and missed opportunities, and we need to talk about those as well. Looking at the whole past, we can then ask, what is next? How do we keep moving forward? How do we stay on the journey and get to the place of liberation? I don't have all the answers, but maybe together we can come up with some good questions. Let's celebrate successes, practice honesty and humility, and gather up what we need to keep going. For both ethical culture and Unitarian Universalism, there were some proud moments in the 20th century civil rights movement, and there are a number of parallels leading into and including that movement. Both movements had a history from the 19th century up to the middle of the 20th century with some progressive statements and actions. Yet both remained predominantly white in membership and especially in leadership. There were both ethical culturists and Unitarians among those who assisted with the founding of the NAACP. There were abolitionists among the Universalists and the Unitarians. The Universalists had supported a mission and a school in Virginia led by a black Universalist minister, Joseph Jordan. Leading into the consolidation of the Universalists and the Unitarians in 1961, both had made official statements about equality as the UUA continued to do. And similarly, the AEU made statements of support. So the stage was set for each movement to answer the call when feet on the ground made a difference in efforts for integration and voting rights. The journeys of Unitarian Universalism around race are well documented by Mark Morrison Reed in four books of history, his editing of two anthologies of readings and numerous articles and lectures. Uh, Susan read earlier from the Selma Awakening, how the civil rights movement tested and changed Unitarian Universalism. And in that book, Morrison Reed summarizes the movement's preparedness for the events of 1965 this way. The groundwork for the Unitarian Universalist response to Selma was in place. During the two decades that followed the Second World War, the UUA and its predecessors increasingly articulated 
their strong support for racial justice. Unitarians and Universalists supported school desegregation, open housing, equal access, and integration. Furthermore, the majority of their ministers engaged with the cause of racial justice in some way. Morrison-Reed goes on to say that while, while white Unitarian Universalists did not understand that their attitudes and customs perpetuated systemic racism, even as they attempted to be part of the solution against racism, but they were earnest in their attempts. He continues, nonetheless, the Unitarians and the Universalists strove to turn good intentions into action, and in doing so began to build relationships with African-Americans and their institutions. By March 1965, enough UUs were embedded in a web of relationships that these connections, whites to blacks and liberal religion to the cause of civil rights, compelled them to respond. It was the relationships that compelled them to respond. Meanwhile, the Washington Ethical Society, founded in 1944, followed a similar pattern of activism. The Society's three named co-founders included Professor Augustus Ozen, who was African-American, as well as white comrades L.D. McIntyre and clergy leader George Beecham. The society forged a way through the segregated District of Columbia, meeting in places that would accept an integrated group. They met for a while at the Friendship Settlement House. They met for a time at the Dodge Hotel, which was strategically located near Union Station and its integrated restaurant, The Sovereign. And thanks to a legacy gift, West purchased a brownstone on Massachusetts Avenue and from there was able to host meetings of civil rights groups. Betty Chia Caro and Hank Gassner were generous with their time when I asked them about West in the mid 20th century. I called them up to ask for an appointment and they just talked to me for two hours. Um, Betty Chia joined uh, West in the late 1950s and she recalled stories from George Beecham and L.D. McIntyre and Gus Alzan that she heard from them about the first decade of West before she arrived. Betty Chia was also an activist with SNCC and she worked for the Civil Rights Commission and she became a lawyer. Hank joined Wes around 1966 and was part of a cohort of young adults at that time who dove deeply into the cause. Betty Chia said that members of Wes did not waste time in the 50s but got right to business picketing rest rest restaurants and the Georgetown YMCA to demand integration. The first three presidents of West lived in integrated neighborhoods, including one that was right next to Glen Echo Park. So thus member, West members and their friends from the civil rights movement were well-placed when protests began for integrating Glen Echo Park in 1960. In 1963, every member of West was sent a letter encouraging their support for the March on Washington. There was clarity of values. When Wes had to leave the Brownstone and DuPont Circle, the members chose to move to she the Shepherd Park neighborhood. Virginia was still loudly resisting integration, and most Maryland suburbs were segregated in practice, if not on paper. Shepherd Park was one of the areas where Neighbors Inc. was active. Neighbors Inc. worked against blockbusting, created opportunities for relationship building for neighbors across racial lines, challenged racially discriminatory real estate and lending practices, and collected evidence of racial steering. 
I know there are members of WES who had direct experience with Neighbors Inc. and perhaps they will say more during community sharing. During construction of the building on 16th Street, despite the presence of union lawyers on the WES board, WES decided to build with contractors who offered jobs to African-American tradespeople and apprentices, which the union shops did not. The unions threatened to picket, but clergy leader Ed Erickson had a large sign posted declaring this an integrated worksite. The pickets never happened, and so the meeting house here on 16th Street opened in 1966. Wes's move to Shepherd Park happened a year after the demonstrations for voting rights in Selma, which Morrison-Reed identifies as a turning point in the racial justice involvement for Unitarian Universalists. Morrison-Reed talks about the crescendo of activism leading up to that march, including the Mississippi Summer Project for Freedom Schools and Voter Registration in 1964, which attracted dozens of Unitarian Universalist volunteers. Racist reprisals against projects like these prompted the National Council of Churches to ask clergy to come to Macomb, Mississippi to support the Delta Ministry Project. Nine ministers and two seminarians went to Macomb in response. And so there were already some UU activists involved in the Deep South on February 18, 1965. That was when, during a march in Marion, Alabama, a state trooper shot Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was trying to protect his grandfather from a beating. Jackson was an Army veteran and a deacon at his Baptist church. His death was one of the catalyzing forces that inspired people to plan a march from Selma to Montgomery, the state capital. The first foray on that march became known as Bloody Sunday. On Sunday, March 7th, under the eye of national television cameras, peaceful protesters were beaten by police as they approached the Edmund Pettus Bridge. 17 were hospitalized. These protesters included a young John Lewis, future U.S. congressman. So that was Sunday, and at 4.57 a.m. Monday morning, Dr. King sent a telegram calling on clergy of all faiths to join me in Selma. Word spread quickly among UUs. And there's no internet, right? They all had to call each other or call their neighbors or their workplaces if they didn't have a telephone. Two days later, 10% of active UU clergy, which was about 60 ministers, were in Selma. There was a partial march, and navigating a show of force from the state troopers, Dr. King turned the protesters back at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He saw that how, how already their group was more racially mixed than it had be, been before, and that that racial mix made the protesters safer. And he knew that more protesters were on the way. So Dr. King asked all of the clergy who were able to stay in Selma so they would try again. That evening, a group of UU ministers found themselves with an integrated crowd eating at Walker's Cafe. Clark Olson, Orloff Miller, and James Reeb left the cafe to head back to Brown Chapel AME, where they were attacked, and on the way they were attacked and beaten by local white supremacists. James Reeb died of his injuries on March 11th. As Reeb lay dying, protesters kept arriving, and those in Selma kept demonstrating. They stood for days in the wind and the rain, waiting for a court order that would allow the march to continue the entire 50 miles from Selma to Montgomery. There were protests in sympathy with voting rights all over the U.S. and Canada. There were several interfaith, interracial memorial services for James Reeb. At the service on March 15th in Selma, Dr. King gave the eulogy. 
In preparation for that service, the UU clergy committed to mentioning Jimmy Lee Jackson in the same breath as James Reed, both martyrs to the same cause, though the world was poised to notice only one of them. More protesters arrived in Selma, congregating at a clothesline meant to make a barrier to contain the protest. And this is the line that was called the Selma Wall. There were various small protests and strategic actions, such as a visit to the mayor's house. And finally, a federal judge ruled that the march could continue with as many people as wished participating on the first and last day when the march would continue on a four lane highway, but only 300 people on each of the middle days when the route traveled along a two lane highway. The governor of Alabama resisted, so President Johnson sent federal troops to secure the route. UUs arrived not only for Reeb's funeral, not only to march, but to provide transportation, logistics, and security. Other UUs participated from home, coordinating the movement of people and resources from Denver, Atlanta, Northern Virginia, and other places. Those who arrived to support the protest included Viola Liuzzo, a lay member of a congregation in Detroit. She was shot by white supremacists while transporting protesters. As a woman and a lay person, her sacrifice did not get the attention it deserved at the time. Today, we remember Viola Liuzzo as a martyr for civil rights. In the end, Morrison Reed writes, between 177 and 250 UU ministers and hundreds of lay people journeyed to Selma and in Montgomery. Others led demonstrations in their local communities. Add to that the dozens who spent time with the Mississippi Summer Project, the Delta Ministry Project, and other efforts in the South afterward. It isn't a stretch to estimate that half of the 710 UU ministers in full fellowship were actively engaged in this struggle. For many, the experience changed their lives and it brought to the UUA a sea change in attitudes. Back at West in the late 1960s saw a continuing commitment to integration. Betty Chia and Hank described an effort in the young adult group to provide tutoring at the Gethsemane Baptist Church, a project that lasted for two years. There was a turning point in 1968 when Dr. King was assassinated. Later that year, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference implemented his last project, a poor people's campaign that brought 5,000 demonstrators to DC, but did not achieve its goal of an economic bill of rights. So there was a great disappointment, even as they were on the verge of understanding that racial justice and economic justice are linked. The events of 1968 did change the tone of activism. There was a level of mistrust and a change in the strategy and the work for racial justice, as well as a change in the mood nationally. After that, West got involved in fewer direct local community encounters, fewer protests, and more fundraisers and cultural projects. There were some triumphs of compassion and human dignity, like the art show that featured works by artists who were incarcerated at, incarcerated at Lorton and the Helping Hands craft show, which raised money for services to homeless people. How much did y'all raise? $10,000? The Ethical Culture High School was another point of pride and effort. Overall, the emphasis turned inward in the 70s and 80s with a lot of attention to relationship skills and inner conflict. And these are important areas and need not be mutually exclusive with social justice. In any case, the tone and emphasis shifted and there was less activity in the area of racial justice. 
In reviewing history for Founders Day last year, one member speculated that for white activists, the turn toward black self-determination meant they weren't sure how to support racial justice. It was hard to know what to do. If activism wasn't about taking leadership or making your own spaces available without changing them. Racial justice, all kinds of justice, is not charity or benevolence or helping the less fortunate. At a certain point, figuring out a way forward in that work for predominantly white communities, even liberal integrated communities, became difficult. For predominantly white communities in the late 19, in the 1970s and in the 80s, the work of racial justice was like the birds in search of the Samorg flying through the fog. Black empowerment was important and necessary. Black empowerment was vital, is vital. And progressive white communities are still working to catch up to what it means and how to be in solidarity. The UUA also faced challenges in translating the wisdom, energy, and focus hard won in Selma to lasting systemic change. A team called the After Selma Committee noted that African-American communities and people were rightfully skeptical of integrated projects and offers of help from white congregations. They also noted that as long as most congregations remained functionally segregated, if not officially segregated, as well as class structured, transformation would be difficult. Mark Morrison Reed writes, the after Selma committee, as it processed what it had learned from the UUA's involvement in Selma, correctly read the emerging attitude among African-Americans. Blacks had grown increasingly suspicious of whites and interracial undertakings, and now demanded black community control and independence. He goes on, in the aftermath of Selma, many UUs scrambling to live out the lessons they had learned, recommitted themselves to the cause of freedom and equality. Unitarian Universalists came at it the only way they could. They did not understand that their earnest yearning, fair-mindedness, and good deeds would not suffice, or foresee that changing laws would not be sufficient. In other words, Morrison Reed says, in and of themselves, noble aspirations and heroic deeds cannot undo systematically embedded patterns. One of the challenges then and now is an understanding the paradigm shift that true justice requires. And accepting that true justice meant and means giving up privilege and moving with cultural change in the spaces where white and or middle class people are comfortable. Some white advocates for integration in the mid 20th century were not aware of the way their approach conflated integration with assimilation. Morrison Reed writes, the goal was never integration for integration's sake. The goal was racial justice. So in the UUA in the 70s and 80s saw the focus on racial justice soften and other issues take center stage. These were also major issues, but the advocacy lost effectiveness without an analysis that noticed connections with racial justice. Women's rights, LGBT rights, and peace are all important. And UUs made major contributions on these issues in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And with honesty and humility, we need to go back and learn from where we missed the mark in racial justice. 
we arrive at the question of where to go next. The answer is to keep on moving forward. In the West journey, which follows the same path and cultural forces and trends as the UU journey, traveling toward justice, toward the practice and recognition that our liberation is bound up together. That journey has brought us over dangers and through fog. Some of our beloveds have gotten lost or discouraged or turned around. We still have further to go. We know that this journey will involve tears, lament for those we have lost, grief for wasted time and unnecessary obstacles to human thriving, tears of recognition and reconciliation as we come to terms with the truth. We know this journey will involve sacrifice. Those with privilege and comfort will give some up. Those with the habitual ability to control will have to loosen as we are guided by coalitions led by those most impacted. We will sacrifice to support our partners in WIN, in CAN, in the Poor People's Campaign, and other coalitions. There may be friendships lost or lives as our whole society decides whether or not to support human worth and dignity. We know we will need courage. Not only will we need courage to do hard things like public witness, risky statements, and generous investment in a just and sustainable future. We need the courage to change ourselves, our communities, and the interlocking systems of white supremacy. We need the courage to look honestly at our past and present. We need the courage to know that we are accepted and loved as we are and that we can and will do better. And I believe we will. We have not reached the destination and the journey itself is worthwhile. We will help each other in flight, in song, in navigation, in gathering. We will learn from the geese and trade places in leadership to share our strength. In that journey, we will practice and demonstrate and live into the truth that our liberation is bound up together. All of us need all of us. May it be so. After some music, we'll have community sharing time when you can write into the chat or come to the microphone and share about what resonated with you in today's platform. In this time between, you might prepare for community sharing by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at West that illustrates the values that we're lifting up today. As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let us experience the beauty of the musical response. This song simply says, build a bridge. Let's walk hand in hand across the land. I'll sing it through one time, and then I'll add some, a backup track to it. Let's work hand in hand. All across this land, oh, I know we can build a bridge. Oh, and high and wide, across the great divide, oh, I know it's time to build a bridge. All right, with the backup tracks. Let's work hand in hand 
This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates in our own lives. For online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in the comments if you are watching in uh, the recording later. I'll start with the Zoom comments and accept 
comments at the microphone afterwards. Some of the words from the Zoom, powerful words, powerful teachings and learnings. So much to take in. Thanks so much to Lynn and Susan for the indomitable Hank and Betty, whoops, and the indomitable Hank and Betty Chia. I sure hope they have written and or recorded all this history. You are both, you are both a continuing gift to Wes. The next one, all the music today has been wonderful with beautiful lyrics and so well performed. What a gift, Lynn, to gather the history of civil rights with the UU and the West experience. This talk needs to be recorded and made part of our archives. A very stirring platform, words and music. This is one to watch again. I feel inspired to find a way to go to a win action or action meeting. And comments. I don't see any more in the chat. Okay, great. Okay. So then, then you can then we can move to our in person. In person. Uh, now it's your your turn to be commentators in the hall. If you would like to come to the microphone and make a comment. Make it brief and we will all be listening. Come on, somebody has one comment. <laughs> you don't want to prove to the people at home that there are live people in the hall? Okay. <laughs> all right. Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources. Here at West, we split the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, half of our offering is dedicated to the Washington Interfaith Net Network WIN as a broad-based, multiracial, multi-faith, strictly nonpartisan, district-wide citizens' power organization rooted in local congregations and associations. WIN's 48-member org organization includes West represents 25,000 families in every single district and reflect its theological, racial, geographic, and economic diversity. Wynn is committed to training and developing neighborhood leaders to address community issues and to holding elected and corporate officials accountable in Washington, D.C. Let us take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity if you are someone who gives by text or in the front of, of a device where you can navigate to the donation page on our website, get out your phone and your tablet and navigate right now. On the slide, there is no slide, but <laughs> the number is to give by text 202-335. 1885. You can also make a gift online through the donate button on the website at ethicalsociety.org. Now we will complete the collection area by uh, uh, some music from Jimmy Fontanez.
dancing. <laughs> Thank you for your generosity. We now will receive uh, gifts from, uh, we already saw, got their gifts. All right, so appreciations and announcements. Thank you so much to the many people who helped create this morning together. Thank you to the interim music coordinator, Leah Morris, and the featured guest musician, Kathy Bullock. She was amazing this morning. Thank you to Jimmy Fontanez for the collection music and West Band and Chorus for the Song of the Month. Thanks to Maceo Thomas, our membership coordinator. Thank you to John and Abby Dakin who created our slides and to Robin Kravitz for communication support. Thank you to Indara Miles for running our SEEK program, including OWL. And thank you to Linda Irizari for running programs for middle and high school age youth. Thank you to Tom Hutton for administration support. Thank you to Alex Abbott for hosting the upcoming virtual coffee hour. And thank you to the Zoom usher, Kate Lang and tech team, John Leka, Denise Howell, John Pfeiffer, and Michael Demi, Demiam. Thank you to the greeters, Donna Taylor, Janine Ansel, and Francie, can't see the last name. But if I left you out, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you who are leading and supporting our works in the coming weeks. And here is a little bit of our latest news. Sunday Ethical Education for Kids, otherwise known as SEEK, has a number of active programs. Our whole lives is scheduled to meet today at noon. Next week, the third, fifth through fifth grade class will meet in person at 10.30. Um, neighboring faiths for sixth and seventh grade will meet next Sunday at 12.30. Our whole lives will meet next Sunday at 2.30. Volunteer opportunities around abound. Ask Indara Miles how you can help make SEEK happen. Okay, you are all welcome to participate in this week's SEEK service project in honor of National Children's Dental Health Month. Now this is really important. We are collecting new children's toothbrushes and dental floss for the Global Dental Relief Organization. Handmade cards are also welcome to be, to be created by volunteers who are dentists, hygienists, assistants, and general volunteers. I am not a good artist, so I am not going to contribute to that, but we'll see. As you can see, we have returned to a hybrid platform with attendees both online and in the hall. Those who wish to attend platform will need to pre-register pre and answer a health questionnaire. That form is available at the tiny.cc backslash platform reservation. In-person attendees will also need to bring their vaccination card or a picture of their vaccination card. Those who are medically unable to be vaccinated can bring proof of negative test from within 24 hours of platform. Online attendance will continue to be available for the foreseeable future, as you always are welcome to come to our Zoom meetings. Okay. The reopening task force will be available by Zoom at 1 p.m. today for a reopening town hall. If you have questions, you can email westreopeningteam at ethicalsociety.org, or you can join them on Zoom at 1 p.m. Next Sunday, February 27th, Interim Leader Lynn Cox will lead platform about motion using physics metaphors for how we grow and change. Physics. Yeah. Wow. Join us next Sunday at 1030 to continue the conversation. 
There is a lot going on, and you can see the calendar with upcoming events. I think that's it. Nobody has any more comments today? Nothing? We're all exhausted. <laughs> all right. So, close and saw them up. Close. Thank you for being a part of the platform this morning. Our closing song of the month, Draw the Circle Wide, performed by West Band and Chorus. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. No one stands alone, we stand side by side. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. No one stands alone, we stand side by side. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle wide. As we close, if you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. His email is maceot at ethicalsociety.org. To reach virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc.westcoffeehour. And our closing words for this lovely Sunday are, let us, I invite you to join me in the closing words. Let us go into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment for our hearts and our, well, better world. <laughs> we, we sort of got it. Thank you.